Couch Wisdom. Couch Wisdom. Hey, this is Todd Burns from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, our regular podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. Beverly Glenn Copeland moved from Philadelphia to Canada in 1961 to study at McGill University. Trained as a vocalist, he released a self-titled debut album in 1970, now a collector's favorite, before earning a spot as a regular contributor on children's TV show Mr. Dress Up. Over 40 years, Copeland remained dedicated to forward movement, writing plays, composing soundtracks, and writing music that channels and celebrates the varied cultural influences of his own background. His 1984 self-released electronic album, Keyboard Fantasies, was reissued in 2016, its visionary approach resonating with the ears of a new generation. In this lecture at the Red Bull Music Academy Basecamp Montreal 2017, hosted by Johnny Hawken, Copeland spoke with refreshing honesty and generosity about lessons learned and imparted timeless advice about the unifying and healing power of art. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit of Couch Wisdom. So I'm very honored to present our guest, Beverly Glenn Copeland. Let's give him a round welcome. All right, so here's yours. Oh, wow, I get one. Yay. Yeah. Yes, you do. <laughs> no, just talking to it. Hello, hello, hello. Um... So I guess we're going to start at the beginning. So um, let's start with a piece of music. Okay. Or two, because they're not too long. Um, so we're going to start with some Chopin. Hey there, at this point in the lecture, they played some music. Unfortunately, due to copyright reasons, we can't play that here. Yeah, I'm bummed too. Anyway, uh, enough from me. Let's go back to couch wisdom. So you, ch- you, chose, you chose some Chopin. To begin, before it oh, finished. sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> so, so you chose some Chopin. Um, it's a it's a great beginning for the tired eyes in the morning. Um, but but why did you choose that? What uh, where did you first hear that music? Okay, so um, I was raised um, in Philadelphia, um, and I I I came to. Uh, Canada in 1961 to go to McGill University. So that's just to, so you understand that I came from Philadelphia. So my father was a black man, obviously. Well, no, that's not obvious because, you know, our, all, our histories are very complex and our genetics are very complex and mine, is, mine are very complex. But my father identified as a black man and looked like a black man. And this is what he played on our piano for five hours a day. This was my cradle music. So I was raised on Chopin, Bach, Brahms, and some other things as well. And I didn't think about it. It was just what my father, my father was an educator, he worked with, uh, you know, bringing black youth to a place where they can go off to university or whatever it is that, they, you know, that they wanted to do successfully. And then he came home and he sat down at the piano and he played this music five hours a day, 
every day. So that's what I heard. That was my cradle music. So I almost broke into tears listening to it because my father died many years ago. I was very young when he died. He was only 50 years old and I loved him to pieces and it was a great loss to me. So this, when I hear this music, yes, this, this, this brings up my dad that I adored. Right, so I wanted to, to share this with you because um, you want to know where a person comes from. So that's, that's where I, I come from. Now, it also happened that he played Count Basie and um, all the great blues masters, but he didn't play that on piano. I heard that, you know, um, records of those. And then there was what I was listening to, but for the first... I would say five, six, seven years of my life, that's what I heard, right? So there you go. How, how passionate was he? Oh. If you were playing five hours a day, you must be. He was, he was, very, he was a very quiet person. He was very, he was, a, he was a, an amazing being. My mother was an amazing being too. You, you just don't survive unless you come from amazing beings in this world. That's just the way it is. I'm sure all of you know that. But my dad, my mom, actually, my mom decided she was going to make me into a musician when I was in utero. So she played the piano for an hour every single day before I was born, right? She, too, was an educator. So music wasn't her first thing that she did. But she actually played very well, and she could play anything, right? You know, you say, my mother could play it, right? So, so she... She set this up, and then my dad, he was playing in the basement, as we had a piano in the basement, and he was playing in the basement so much that she decided she was never going to see him, so she went out and she bought him a, a grand piano and put it in the living room so she could put, so she could be with him, and I mean, that was really quite an extraordinary thing. But it meant that my father would come home from teaching and he would chop up his food in little tiny portions. And then my mother would make dinner because it was pretty traditional in those days. She made, the, she made the food and he washed the dishes, right? Except when I washed the dishes, which was most of the time. And, and then he would like, he'd sit down and he'd go, woof, 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 and he'd eat the dinner in like about 30 seconds. I don't think he ever chewed anything. And then he would run to the piano, and then we would have dinner music. My mother considered that that was amazing. We had dinner music, right? So there you go. So I have an unusual background, and I wanted to, I wanted to play that because it, it's so emotional for me to hear that music. So when did you start taking the piano? When did you start okay. making that music? That was very painful for me because my father was so brilliant. And um, so we, we made the mistake of, take my, of, of going to the same piano teacher, right? Never do that to your children when you have it, okay? If you all become very, well, you're all musicians or you wouldn't be here, don't have your children take lessons wherever you might be going to. 
take lessons. Because what happened to me was my father would go in and he'd go, and the teacher would start having orgasms. And then I'd come in, right? King, 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 king. And the teacher would go, So I developed a complex about the piano, which was that I never wanted to play it. I was actually quite good at it, but I never wanted to play it because there's no way I was going to come anywhere close to my father, right, and his ability on piano. So it was um, good for me because it uh, forced me to, to do other things, right? But yeah, spare that, spare your children. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so did you immediately become a singer because of that? Um, no. Um, it's it's kind of wild, but um, I was born singing, according to my mother. My mother said that when she turned on any music from about the age of two months on, I would begin to hum, right? Well, that's her fault. Because, you know, she'd been doing that to me when I was still in utero, right? You know, she's playing the piano and I'm in there going. (laughs) So, yeah, so I started singing very early, but I didn't start taking any voice lessons until I was uh, 15. At 15, my best friend and I decided we would go and join the orchestra. And there was a school that we went to that was way ahead of its time. It, it, was a, it was a school for, among other things, for um, if you wanted to paint or if you wanted to do music. And this, we're talking 1957, folks, so it was really, truly ahead of its time, right? So my friend decided she wanted to join the orchestra. So they asked her, you know, what did she want to play? And she said, oh, I want to play the harp. So that's fine. Then they asked me what I wanted to play, and I said, oh, I don't know. And they said, oh, you have long arms. You should play the trombone. And I went home to my mother and said, you know, they want me to play the trombone. My mother said, over my dead body. And so I didn't play the trombone, so I went and I joined the choir. My friend became the principal, the principal um, harp, harpist for the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Right? Wow. Yeah, well, my friends were all musical. And I mean, something about the, that year, <laughs> all, the, all the friends I had were artists, and even though we were little, right? So she became the, she became the you know, she, she became a major, major, major player in, the, in that world. And I went off and uh, started um, singing. And um, that was my start in singing, and it was, it was, I loved it, loved it. And you went, you went pretty far pretty quickly with singing. It depends on what you call far. Because I had been listening to classical music my whole life, I was a classical singer. But I was not interested in opera, right? For a number of reasons, which I will tell you in, in a little bit, but um, it was not my thing. I liked the music of, it's called leader, which just means song. So I like the song repertoire of primarily the, the 19th century out of Europe. That is what I utterly loved. And I sang that, I started doing that professionally, and I ended up 
representing Canada at Expo 67 way before you were born as a leader singer. And then one day I went, wait a minute, this is a past life. I already did that life. Because when I was a child, I was listening to Chinese music. This is what I was listening to. I was listening to Chinese music. I was listening to African drums. I was listening to the music of India, right? And I would listen to that a lot. Like all those things were calling me. Drums were calling me. The sitar was calling me. I was interested in the sound of the, of the, the things that were coming out of China, the, the sort of whatever. I was listening to world music in 1956. So I suddenly realized I'm living a life, I'm about to live a life I've already lived. I've already been a leader singer. This is my perspective. I've already been a leader singer in another lifetime, right? In this lifetime, I'm interested in weaving the music from around the world, right? And... You know, African music was really, really big up on my, my list of what I was listening to. So my father might have been playing Chopin, but I was listening to drums. Where did you get that music as a kid? Oh, you could the... find it everywhere. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it wasn't... But you, but you, you went out and, and bought it or got your parents to buy it? How did you no, come I across just, yeah, it? Yeah, no, I, I was able to buy, buy you, could, you could get uh, LPs of, of, of really good... And I listened to these weird music stations that had those things that was playing music from around the world even then. Yeah, yeah. I know it's shocking <laughs> to think that back in 1957 in very Euro-dominated America, you know, one could listen to West African drumming, but you could, yeah. And I was doing that. What was your parents' response to your passion about this other music? They, they were really interested in me being interested in any, whatever I was interested in, right? Um, for some reason, you know, my father, you know, you don't know why a person is interested in anything. I mean, some of you are coming from a Celtic background and you're probably, uh, you, know, you know, using African rhythms in what you're doing, right? Like my background is, my genetic background is West African, Celtic, and First Nations. My grandmother is First Nations. I have all kinds of Celtic great-grandmothers and I got pictures of them and whatever, and then, and then West African, right? So, you know, your genetics, you know, I mean, I'm going off here, but you know, you think you look like X, Y, and Z, but you have no idea what's in your bloodlines and what starts calling you, not only what you're hearing in the environment, but what's actually coming from your bloodlines. The first time I heard um, bagpipes, I was I was 19 years old. I was at McGill doing music, and I raced, and the, the black watch went by. I had never heard pipes in my entire life. I ran to the window and burst into tears. Just, I just, I almost just passed out. It was so amazing what I was listening to. It just hit such a deep chord. Now, that's true of the pipes anyway. But unbeknownst to me, I have Celtic grandmothers, right? Well, they were speaking to me, right? Just like my Africans one, ones were, and my grandfathers, right? 
And the same is first my first my when my grandmother, my father's mother's First Nations, right? I never saw her dance any other way except the way indigenous people in this land dance. The rest of us all had our asses stuck out. We were African, you know. Right? That's the African, the African um, if you, if you draw lines based on, on what people, you know, what their culture is, the African stance is with the forward, with the forward and the ass out, right? <laughs> right. I mean, no, that's, that's traditional, right? So that's what I did. So all of that, we're all of that. This is going to really weird places, isn't it? <laughs> anyway, you are all of that, right? All of you, doesn't matter what color your skin may be or, you know, what, who, whatever. If you do, if you do DNA testing, you will find the world is in your, in your bodies, right? And, and the world is calling to you. And that's why your generation, your generation, is the generation that is going to save this world. <laughs> it's because you are all world citizens. Yeah, you are. And, and even though you may not know it in a conscious way, that's how you act. And so I have to tell you, I'm so happy to have lived long enough to meet you all. Because you're the generation that was promised a long time ago. Years and years and years ago, I heard about your generation coming. But they didn't, you know, they always say something's coming, but they didn't ever say when, right? So for the longest time, I was looking, looking, where, where are they, where are they, where are they? So I was looking at Generation X. This can't be them, right? This is not what was promised. <laughs> this is the bi-generation, right? <laughs> Whatever. But you all finally showed up. And um, now you're here, and I'm just totally honored to have lived long enough to meet you all. But Glenn, I feel like you are a predecessor to this generation with your interest in the, the music of the world and you're looking out for this generation. Was it difficult to be so ahead of your time in, that, in those modes of thinking? Well, yes and no. It was very difficult in some ways because nothing I ever wrote sounded like anything anybody wanted to hear at that time. Because I was writing stuff, I was, I was doing what, what I hope you will do, which is to write what your heart tells you to write and not what the society tells you is going to make you, quote, famous, unquote. If what you feel happens to be what's happening, if that's really coming from your heart, then you go for it. If it's not, don't do it. Don't do it. Stay with what your heart tells you to do because ultimately it will take you to a victory that is much more profound than twisting yourself into a pretzel to make it work. Whatever, whatever you know, I'm not judging about, I'm, I have no judgments about what it is that you individually may feel to do. But the most important thing is to stay, stay real with what, who you are. That's the most important thing. Stay real with who you are, whoever you are, right? 
doesn't matter. But just if, yeah. So if so, I stayed real with who I was, and that meant that um, nobody was too much interested in what I did. And so, but I just continued to do it because I had no life but that. There was there was nothing. I had nothing to say but but what was real for me. So I just did it, and um, yeah. Now now all of a sudden it's it seems that now it's time or something. I don't know, but that happens. Well, with that in mind, we we spoke about you giving up being a leader singer to create your own work. Yeah. Um, why don't we listen to something from the, from the GRT record? Um, oh, you wanna do the GRT? I, I think you, I'd like you, to start that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> because it's, it wasn't the first thing that you made, that you wrote, right. but it is something that's uh, became very highly sought after by record collectors um, in the time since. So it's, it's a bit of an example of what you were just saying. Which one are you going to? I would love to listen to The Color of Anyhow. <laughs> okay, well, all right, first, all right, all right, first I have to tell you something very important. There are four um, challenges in my life, major, major, major challenges. The first was being black in a white culture. You know, whatever. The second was being transgendered in a heteronormative culture, right? The third was that I was a, a musician, uh, an artist, in a business culture, right? That, the, that last one is still very relevant. Artists, artists, this is still a business culture. And there is a great desire to make art into business. It is not business. It can be part of business, but it is not business. So this the first piece that you're going to hear is the me that was still living as a female because there was no choice in 1970. There was no choice. So I lived as a female until, well, I, I told my mother I was a boy when I was three. And of course, she freaked out because that was 1947. So anybody's going to freak out if you say that in 1947 especially if they're your mom or whatever. Now, I hope you won't freak out if, you're if your children tell you that, but then you've, you've had a different experience. Anyway, so, um, so this, this is still a time when I, I'm still having to sound like whatever, although I won't get into that right now, but there you go, okay? You don't have to clap. <laughs> I, I think they you. want to clap. Oh. <laughs> That's sort of an early example of your songwriting, and songwriting is something you've been doing ever since. So looking back, how, how does that make you feel hearing that song? Well, it freaks me out um, because I'm so removed from that, and it's taken me a while to reconcile the sound that I hear and... Um, and the and the the it's just like I don't write in any one style. So what that sounds like, and what then the next thing is going to sound like, and then the next thing, and the next thing is going to be all so different. And I so live in the moment. It's really hard for me <laughs> to. I almost don't relate to stuff that I write 
in, you know, the day before yesterday, much less 40, 50 years ago, right? So let's see, that was written when I was, well, it was written in 1970 or 69 or 68 or something. So how many years is that? That's beyond my ability to add. It's a long time ago. Yeah, it's a long time ago, yeah. So it's like I hear it and it's like, oh, that's very nice, but do I relate to it? No, not really. But I'm always happy if somebody else does, right? Because then that's, that's great. And okay, so how sh shocked are you about that? How's that? I mean, I, I don't know how old most of you are, but I'm assuming 20s and 30s. Am I right? Right. So is there, do you, have, have you had experience where there's things that you write or, or ways of expression and then you go back to it and it, it doesn't speak to you any longer? Yes? I don't want you to be judgmental about what you did. It's just that you may not relate to it anymore and you might not like it. But it's, it's whatever you wrote was very important in that time because that was a step on your path. It was very important. Who was playing guitar on that? Okay, so the person who was playing guitar on that is one of the masters, if not the grandmaster of guitars at, for probably the last hundred years. His name is Lenny Bro. If you're not familiar with him, um, he was a jazz master, but I'll give you an example. But he, he, he played all kinds of things. And I'll give you an example. He was, he was, one, he was one of the most humble beings ever, he, he told me a story about, and he told me this story laughing, kind of gently laughing. He said that he, he started playing, he was born in the Maritimes, and he started playing, and he would listen to, to records, and then he would figure out how to play it. And then only later he would find out that they had recorded that four or five times over, you know, layers, right? Yeah, but he would figure out how to play it, not knowing that it was four layers that had been put on top of each other. He was that brilliant. He was a genius, right? And I was very fortunate. I was just a little kid, basically, not a little kid, but I was a kid, and I knew nothing about the music industry, and I was zipped into this studio with this grandmaster of the guitar. He was a grandmaster, and several other grandmasters of their own instruments. And we sat down, and every single thing we did off the floor, I gave, they, they got the music five minutes before, first take. One take, everybody at once, right? Yeah, then that, friends, ain't never done that since. Don't ever hope to, right? That's an amazing, amazing thing. It speaks to genius when you can have somebody, you can give five people uh, something and they look at it for three minutes and then they come up with that on one take, right? Yeah. How did that session come about? Well, um, there was a gentleman who wanted to be, um, who wanted to record my music, and he was friends or knew all of these individuals, and he just, you know, said, well, just come on in the studio, we'll just have some folks. I didn't know any of the individuals who ended up playing, but they were all um, masters in what they did. 
Yeah, it was very, very, it was an amazing experience. Yeah. So did you find, when did you find out that they were going to be that good? Was it in the session? In the session. I knew nothing about these people. Nothing. It's one of the wonderful things about being totally innocente, right? You just stumble into things and wonderful things happen, but... I, 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 was, uh, I was and still am quite, um, yeah, musician, it, musicians tend to come into two, two, two categories who write music. Those who listen to everything and those who listen to almost nothing, right? I listen to almost nothing. And I'm, I'm learning, I'm learning, I'm from your generation, I'm starting to find out what I should be listening to because they're starting to tell me listen to this, listen to this, listen to this, and I'm starting to listen, and I'm hearing the geniuses of your time, right, because of it. But I, basically, I, I'm a, I lived in audio total silence and listened to no music at all. But that's probably because I listened to so much of it when I was little. I mean, you know, it was, it was so much going on in my household, I just needed some silence in the next 30 years, 40 years or something. Yeah, uh, I don't want to dwell on this, but compared to the YouTube of that, which is, I think, the place it's most easily found, this sounds really good. This, the file you sent me sounds amazing. Well, that's because this is about to be re- re-released, and um, the company that um, did the, is, that is re-releasing this, it'll be out in probably a couple of weeks, uh, they remastered it brilliantly. When I heard it, I, fe- I had the same feeling. It's like I'd never heard it before. It's so beautiful what they did to it. Um, do, should, do you want to play Ghost House? Um, depends on how much time we have. Okay, I, we I'd can love, save that. I'd love, save I'd love them to hear Lenny Bros in the middle of it. That what he does. Sure. Can, do you want to just play a clip then? Yeah. Can Can yeah. we get to we can search what? I just want you to hear this. I want you to hear this guy. <laughs> to have the experience to be in, in, in a situation with a master like that, right? Remember, this is one take, first time you ever played it. Played it like that, right? I mean, that just like charges me, right? That's just like, ah! Oh. Because excellence, excellence, brilliance, and excellence. There is nothing more inspiring. Oops, sorry. Whoops. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. So, if that was one of your first sessions, did you just think that's what it was always like, or how did? What was your reaction in the studio when that was happening? Did you know? Did you know that that was going to be special? Well, I, I you know, I well, it, it charged me to my to my best ability, right? And afterwards, I I I was mostly there with my like. Oh, who are these people? It's like the 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 person on 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 who was playing flute. He's like he was like the finest flute player probably in the world at the time. He was from New York. You know, who knew, right? He's just like yes. Oh, don't ask me that question. That's terrible. <laughs> because here's the thing, I never had a good memory, and now. At 73, I have no memory whatsoever, right? I'm sorry this is coming for you. It, it, it is coming for My wife, 
when, I, when we first got married, you know, I, I would say, um, honey, you know, the, the witsy fritzy, you know, the whatchama fritzy and the, the whatsoever. And she would kind of look at me like, oh, you know, poor guy. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's 10 years later now. And she goes, the, the what, the what, the what. And so that's how our conversations go. But, you know, the honey, the, you know, the. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. I hope for you that doesn't happen, but it seems to happen with age. <laughs> Well, that's why we have liner notes as well. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, you, yeah. You you can find it. Um, his name. He's he's probably no longer alive now, but he may be. So um, you started your journey into songwriting, and that was one of the things that you that that album was one of the things. What happened um, with that album and in these early days of of your writing? Well, all of a sudden, people decided that I was like some kind of jazz singer which I am not, but I just happened to be backed by jazz musicians. So it had a jazz feel to it. Um, the, the, nobody knew what to do with it, this album. They just kind of put it up on the shelf and went, whatever it is, you know, is this, we don't know what it is. So they didn't even have a category to put it in. In those days, categories were absolutely critical. Right, if you weren't in a category, you just existed out in space somewhere. And there was no category for this, so it just kind of sat on, you know, sat on those things in record shops and people picked it up and some people freaked out over it and, you know, whatever. And years went by and it became, somebody actually, I mean, I actually had somebody buy this album for $2,500. Can you imagine that? Give me a break, right? Like, what album is worth $2,500? I don't care. You know, obviously the money didn't come to me, but still, like, what can you do with $2,500? Anyway, okay, so whatever. Somebody paid $2,500 to get an original of one of these, and then somebody else paid 2000 a few months later, and somebody else pays $1,500. It's like, I, I, can't, I don't understand that at all. I don't get that. But, hey, so it, was, it became a collector's item. Yeah. But at the time, it, it wasn't doing so well. Well, what do you mean by doing so well? I probably sold 10 copies. No. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what did you do with that? What did, how did you take the next step? I, 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 I never stop to think about what happens. I'm always moving forward. If you stop and look back or you get too worried about what's going on right here, you, there's no movement forward. That's the most important thing is the movement forward. Don't get stuck in what you're, in anything. Don't get, don't get into a place where this is who I am, this is what I write. Because as long as you're human and you wouldn't be in this room if you weren't exploring your creativity, creativity has no bounds, has no bounds. Explore whatever comes up. Doesn't matter whether anybody wants it, explore it anyway. If there's something that they want, give it to them, fine. But just keep exploring. Explore all your boundaries, push your boundaries. Yeah, so that's what I was doing. I was just like, 
following my muse, right? Yeah. At a certain point, you did find quite a bit of success with children's music. How did you get into that? How did you get into that business? All right. So the first thing I wanted to be was was a comedian. That was my first love. And I used to do comedy hour, unfortunately, for my poor parents, every single day at eight. It would be like eight and nine and ten. It would be like, and now... <laughs> and my, my mother, who was... You know, it's very interesting because uh, to survive as a black person... Um, my mother was born in 1918. To survive as a black person in those days, if you had the opportunity to become to have a, um, to, to get degrees and all of those kinds of things, which my mother did, you had to be very Euro. You had to be more Euro than Euro, right? So she was very Euro, but at the same time, she was a black woman, so help me, a black woman, right? This is, yeah, right. And that, you know, you... You cannot erase DNA. You can overtop stuff, overtop of stuff, but you know the, the, her DNA was very African. So she was not thrilled about the fact that I wanted to do slapstick comedy. No, because you know her idea of what I was supposed to be was the princess. I was the prince, but she didn't know that. (laughs) The princess to follow, she was a queen, my mother, to follow in her footsteps. And the idea of me doing very black style comedy, which is what I love to do, was not happening for my mother at all. Right? And she was very kind to me. She was always very, com- very compassionate and very supportive. But no, <laughs> that was not, not truly supported, you know, in that way. What was supported in my house was European classical music. Even though my mother did not play European classical music, she played other things. But that's what was going on in my household at that time. Yeah. But making things for children allowed you... Well, what happened? Okay, yeah, you did ask me that question. Okay. <laughs> so what happened was, one of my friends was writing, was a script writer for the Mr. Dress-Up show. So you know the Mr. Dress-Up show? Yeah. So she wrote me into a script, first as just uh, to come on and do some music. But it turned out that I actually was a very good comedian. And the Mr. Dress-Up show was perfect because I got to dress up and be absolutely outrageous and be slapstick. So they started writing me into scripts constantly and they wrote me into scripts and they let me write music for them and I started writing music for other children's television shows and that, that, that went on for 25 years. So I, I, I had no privacy. It was a wonderful time, but I had no privacy because I could not pick my nose in public without somebody coming up to me and saying, ah, oh, you're Beverly from the Mr. Dress-Up show, right? It was, it was wonderful. I had a very high profile, but it also was very um, constricting because it meant I was, I was writing for children 
And so that meant that I couldn't be really be myself um, because you couldn't be transgendered and be writing for children. And you couldn't be like she one day and he the next day or the other way around or whatever, right? So I was very con- it was very constraining, but the good news was I had a blast while I did it. So yes, that's the, that's the Mr. Dress Up reality. It was fun. I got to dress up and be insane. I love children. I have a lot of them. And um, yeah, so that was good, that part. And I think you still do, uh, you still have a, quite a connection with children in educating and using music. Yeah, my wife and I uh, actually had a theater school for a while. And uh, my wife is a, the brilliant everything. I, whereas I have one talent, she has five, right? And they're all amazing. But that's, that's the nature of women, guys. So, you know. Um, um, she, because, because women, uh, the brain is different. You know that, right, guys? Right? The brain's different. They think like, we think like A goes to B goes to C. Women think like everything at once. Right? Just, yeah, the brain's different, right? Anyway, so <clears throat> she's brilliant everything. So we had, um... Um, a children's, it, was, it wasn't only for children, but it was a theater school uh, for five years, and um, we had a blast, and I wrote a lot of music for theater during that time. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so maybe we'll go back to the 80s a little bit. Okay. Um, I'd like to play Ever New. <laughs> Ever New has an interesting story, though, because... Uh, Ever New is how I heard about you, and yeah, it's okay. how I heard about you just recently. Okay, all right. Um, and I think a lot of people, Ever New, and the recent resurgence through the internet is how they've heard about you in, in okay. my generation. Okay. But tell us about the origins of it. Or Ever New. Okay, so I was living in, I've always lived in, um, I've, I'm basically a, a, a woods monk, almost. That's kind of almost what I am. Um, so I was living in the woods as per usual, in the middle of nowhere as per usual. And I had always been interested in computers. Um, I had a computer, the first computer that was ever for individuals. I think it came out of England. It was some, something that started with a Z. It was about that big, and all I could do was add one and one. But I was totally fascinated because I'd always been a sci-fi f- and I always considered that Silicon life was the next developing thing, right? So in 1985, computers had gotten sophisticated enough for me to be able to buy a, a system and, and it allowed me to be able to write music in my home in the middle of the woods and have a full uh, palette of sound, which... I loved because if I could have written music for that included orchestras and choirs and, you know, people that were playing African drums and everything, I would have. And that got exciting over there. (laughs) But I, but I, so computers gave me an instrument to be able to start to, 
to push the, the boundaries and to be able to play all of the things that I was hearing. So this was, this was uh, 1985. So what, what was in your cabin studio? How did you make that? What were you using? Oh, okay. Um, I was using a DX7, a, um, what's the name of the computer that tr um, tried to, it was like a cheap Mac. Um, Hmm, doesn't exist anymore. Commodore? No, not Commodore. Commodore was not sophisticated at all. This is um, Atari. Atari. Who, who's that said that? Yeah, thank you. Yes. Atari, a DX7, and a TR707, I think it was. And that's all. Everything came from that. So. And so you were making music where you lived. Yes. And then what happened with the music? Did you, you compiled it and you released it somehow? What, what was the process? I don't remember. Let me think now. Oh, I remember, yeah. Okay, there was a studio up in the middle of nowhere and they wanted to, I had the money to be able to, which is an amazing experience to actually have the money to go into a studio, but I did, so I, took it to this little studio uh, in the middle of nowhere and we recorded it and then we put it out on a tiny little cassette because that's what we had and we sold maybe 100 copies of it and then it went dormant for 100 years and then the princess came along and kissed me and, or whatever, you all don't know that story, do you? You know how the prince always comes along again kisses the princess, and then she wakes up from the sleep from 100 years. Okay, whatever, never mind. Anyway, so the, the prince, or the princess, whatever, came along and kissed this little album, <laughs> and a Japanese man found this album as a cassette, and about a year and a half ago, he found it, and, he, and I had lots of copies because nobody bought it, so he said, can I have 30 copies? So I shipped them to Japan. And then a week later, he said, I've sold them all out. Can I have 30 more? And I shipped them to Japan. And two weeks later, he said, I've sold them all out. But unbeknownst to me, he was internationally connected. And then the next thing I knew, I had about 10 com record companies after me, after silence for 50 years. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it's all about time. You don't know what the timing for anything is. We don't know the timing of our, of our death. We don't know the timing of our children that are gonna to appear to us. You know, we don't know the timing of when the perfect mate comes along or several perfect mates, and we don't know any, we really don't know anything, really. We think we do. But there's an overarching, our lives, there's purpose to each life. And what that purpose is, is not necessarily revealed immediately. For some people, it's revealed very early. For some people, it's revealed again and again as they go along. For me, that purpose has only recently been revealed. And I can tell you what it is. My purpose, who knew, 
was to encourage your generation about the fact that you all are going to change the world and hopefully save, save us. Hmm. Because it's your generation that went ape over this album. Why? I have no idea. I was writing this before you were born, most of you. Timing is... You know, um, what's his name? Uh, the greatest French impressionist, Van Gogh. Okay, Van Gogh. You know, you're familiar with Van Gogh. Yes? Okay. Van Gogh sold one painting in his entire lifetime. He went completely mad and killed himself ultimately. Right? One painting he sold in his entire lifetime. When I was about 40 years old, I heard an, a radio newscast saying that one of his paintings had just sold for $40 million. $40 million, right? And he couldn't sell but one in his lifetime. And of course, he was overcome by that and, he, and he, he killed himself. But timing, we, don't, we have no idea. I'm not Van Gogh, so this is not, you know, like, you know, it's not like going to be happening for me like 40,000 years after I'm dead, like it will be for Van Gogh. Well, maybe not 40,000 years. But we each have a purpose. We each, there is something that each of us is here is called to do. Each of us is called to do. We don't know what it is. Do it. Just do what you're called to do, because at some point or another, what you're called to do will be exactly what is wanted. And it may be next week, or it may be 25 years from now, but do it. Because that was a lesson for me. I mean, I, I didn't get discouraged because, well, because I have a Buddhist practice, which, which for me, for, I've been a Buddhist for 44 years. And it's a daily practice. And it helped me to stay very centered and very positive and all of those things that you need to be able to negotiate this world, which is busy crumbling as we speak. It, it helped me to be able to negotiate it. You are inheriting a world that is much more, in much, much more pain than the, the world I inherited. And I am sorry that my generation really, really did not do hardly anything to stop that. Even though years and years and years and years ago, many of us were trying. But by and large, my generation was deaf to it all. They were just so happy to have, to have made it through World War II that they just went on a buying spree. Everything was about buy, 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 buy. What can I get? What can I have? It makes me feel secure. Well, those days are over. And what you are all doing, what you give, art is, what, art is the forward aspect of our humanity. It is what's right out there of our humanity, of our hearts. And that's what you all have now to give going forward. I will be dead, but you will be doing that. Do not fail to give your hearts. Do not fail. It's so important. I'm going to be uh, watching y'all from another dimension, okay? 
Yeah. I'm so grateful. I'm saying this again. I am so grateful you have appeared. Did I answer your question or did I go off on one of my things? Yes, I think you did. Um, I am interested, though, you said that so much has happened in the past couple of years that's made you feel like it's, it's your time now in a way. Can you yeah. tell us a little bit about things that have happened like with this album? and and Okay, the telephone never stops ringing. My telephone never rang for 50 years. Now it rings constantly. There's something going on every minute that has to do with this music. Who knew? You know, you just do what you do, and now it seems to be the time. You know, there's somebody that's about to make a, 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 a movie of my life. <laughs> right? I haven't sold 50 million albums. Why do they want to make a movie of my life? I don't know, but whatever. That's happening. All kinds of things are happening. I can't tell you how many record offer deals have been offered. Probably 15 in the last year. Right? And, you know, it's not like heavy duty. Right? But... Mm, 15 is 15 more than I got offered in 50 years, right? Yeah. So for some reason or another, this is a time, you know? So mostly I'm eating my Wheaties and all my vitamins so I can perhaps live long enough to finish what it is I'm supposed to be doing here, right? Yeah. I was told when I was young that my quote, career, unquote, would happen when I was old. So now that it's starting to happen, I know now I'm old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right, what else do you want to play? Oh, goody. <laughs> How are you guys doing? How are you? you exhausted? You tired? You want to hear some more music? Yes. Oh, wow. Thank you. That's very kind. <laughs> I want to play more. <laughs> okay. All right. So um, my father once said to me, after the first album that was put out, he said, well, you certainly can't sing the blues, right? So I took it on as a challenge. He was right. Because I, 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 you know, I, I'm not a blues singer, and... Everybody has different things that they're able to do, and right, he's like, you know, like I have a feeling for it, but it, it doesn't come out sounding right, right? Anyway, so I wrote this one piece for my father, who's long, long dead. He died in 1973, 72, actually. Um, so this was this was written in 19 when when was this written? 2000, 2004, for my dad. It's called A Song and Many Moons. Yeah. Okay, so I just want to, I just want you to know um, what you can do with your own in your own studio. Okay, so I I wrote that in my studio. I I sang all the parts. I played all the parts except for the guitar, right? So you can do all that, right? Because of the way studios are now, right? So get your chops as much together as possible, because the more you can do, the more control you have over what, what, what's, what you're putting out, right? Yeah. 
you probably know all that anyway, but I'm late to the party, you know? So there you go, yeah. For some reason or another, my computer decided for one year that it was not going to allow me to use this, the application that I'd always use. I've always used Digital Performer. I've been using Digital Performer since 1998. And it decided I was not going to get to use the Digital Performer for one year. And I could not understand why. It would not let me record anything in audio. I took my computer to at least five different people, all of whom were experts, and they all said my computer was perfectly fine. And there was nothing wrong with my program either. But now I understand that it was, it was making me turn to my drum so that I would start to get into rhythms. So one day out of frustration, because I couldn't record anything to speak of, I just went, oh, well, let's just do loops. And you know, who does loops better than GarageBand in terms of you know, readily available? So I just went to GarageBand and went, oh, well. And I started doing all these loops, and out came this amazing stuff. And I thought, hmm, maybe this is why I'm not getting to use my digital compo you know, performer, because I, I really need to be exploring other things, because that's one of the things that happens. We get, into, we get into patterns, and we get caught in those patterns. We never push ourselves past those patterns, because it gets oh so comfortable, right? And then, then our creativity stops being creative. It starts just getting to be repetitive stamping of stuff we've done already, right? So yeah. We're, we're running out of time a little bit, so. Yes. Um, do, you want, go and do you want to play drums? that last song? You want to play the last song? Yeah. yeah. Um, Prince Caspian's mm -hmm. Dream. This is the one that took me 30 years to write. I didn't write it. I, I heard the tiniest aspect of it in 1970. And then every once in 10 years, I'd come back to it and nothing, 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 nothing. So I didn't sweat it. And then one day, I went back to it and the whole thing came to me in 15 minutes. Okay? Okay. Okay. So as one last little treat, Glenn is going to make a little... Very kind. Very long way. So what, explain to us what you're going to do here. Okay, so I never... Um, I don't have songs for this. This is not about songs. It's always an improvisation. I never know what's going to come out. And it's, pardon me, it's based on whatever the drums are talking to me about and the ancestors are talking to me about in any given moment, so to speak. So this is, uh, this is the African side.
So thank you, everyone. Let's give a big thank you to Glenn. Thank you, thank you very much. Thank you. Really an honor. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, this is Todd Burns again. Thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom. Uh, before you go, I just wanted to take a moment to tell you about the Academy. The Red Bull Music Academy is a world traveling series of music workshops and festivals. Almost every year since 1998, we've done the main Academy event in one city. The lecture you just heard, for instance, was from an event in Montreal. But we do events uh, around the world throughout the year. And among other things, we've got an online radio station and an online magazine. In short, it's a lot of stuff, uh, but it's all pretty cool, in my opinion, anyway. Uh, if you want to find out more for yourself, you can check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com. <laughs>